Amen. Let us go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you this morning in the name of Jesus, asking you, Father, to look upon us and have mercy on us, Lord, as your children, as we gather together in your house to worship our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray for a spiritual encouragement uh, this morning. Lord, that you encourage us by your spirit, encourage us by means of the spirit. Lord, we ask you this morning to look upon our uh, nation, look upon the leaders of our nation, look upon the leaders of the world. Lord, your word tells us to pray for those who are in authority. You always ask us, Lord, to pray for leaders everywhere. Lord, my prayer is that our nation and the individuals in it who are not believers will be turned upside down and changed through the preaching of the biblical gospel. Lord, we pray that the gospel goes forth as it is this morning and also in our homes, on our jobs, and in the public square. Lord, the only way a nation can change is when the people change. And the only way the people can change, Father, is when hearts are changed. And the only way that hearts can be changed is upon the hearing of the gospel and man seeing his sin and man seeing his need for a savior, his need for redemption, his need to be renewed in his heart, his need to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Lord, that is the only way a nation can change is if the people change. And Lord, that is the only way our world can change is when people's hearts are changed. So Lord, that is my prayer this morning for our nation and for our world and for those who live in it. Lord, your words tell us, your word tell us that the earth is yours and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Lord, you have dominion over all that you have created. You have rulership over all that you have created. All that you have made, Father, belongs to you. And Lord, who are we to direct you, Lord? It is you who directs us. Who are we, Father, to instruct you? Excuse me, Lord, it is you who instructs us. So, Father, we look to you this morning. We are helpless without you. We are hopeless without you. Father, have mercy upon us as sinners. Lord, we continue to pray for Delois and Harvey. Delois, we, we thank you, Father, for what you did for her. Just last Monday, just last Sunday, she was admitted to the hospital. And we talked to her, and then Monday morning, she talked to Fran and her family. And then by Monday afternoon, Father, she was in ICU in critical condition. 
hooked to a ventilator and intubated. And Lord, it looked very dire. The doctor said that she was in critical condition. She had to, to uh, receive chest compressions when her blood pressure dropped dangerously low. But Lord, we thank you for sparing her life. We thank you, Father, for answering that prayer and bringing her back. And she's continuing her healing process, Father. The stent, rather the clot that was in her leg that caused numbness had cleared out, Father. We thank you for that. We thank you for her continued healing and recovery, Lord, that she can uh, prayerfully go home this week. And Lord, we pray for Brother Harvey, bringing him out of the hospital last week also. Lord, we pray that you continue to, to heal him, that he experiences your faithfulness also, Lord, that when he does his rehab, that you give him that determination to, to do it and do it well so that he can maintain his balance or regain his balance and so that his speech can continue to improve. Lord, we thank you for both of them and the doctors that care for them and the nurses also, Lord, that you may uh, bless their healing hands. And Lord, we pray for other members who are not here this morning that you be with them also. And Lord, we continue to pray for our church that you bring members into the fold, bring visitors to our church, Father, through our efforts and also through providentially them stopping by or uh, listening to sermons or watching us on Facebook and, and your spirit drawing them to our fellowship, Lord. We pray that you uh, do that uh, in this year to help to continue to grow our congregation. And Lord, for those of us who are here that uh, you grow us in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we do that through the means of grace by reading scripture and praying, uh, fellowshipping with the saints, participating in the communion and other uh, things that we do here at our church. Lord, that you grow us all in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, that we strive to know Christ more. Let that be our heart cry for this year Lord I pray for our fellow pastors our brothers in different uh, areas of Calhoun County and Talladega County that you be with the men who are shepherding their flocks this morning our brother Steve Mays brother Cody Hale brother Anthony Cook and Carlton Weathers and Phil Moser and Bob St. John and Justin Holland and James uh, Patterson, uh, Brother Mark Young, uh, Brother Cody Hale, and other men, Lord, at other like-minded churches, that we all shepherd the flock of God which is among us, that we may serve as overseers not by compulsion but willingly, not for dishonest gain but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to us, but that we may be an example to the flock. And when Christ the good shepherd appears, Lord, we will receive the crown of glory that will not fade away. Lord, I pray this prayer also for brothers Gobbleje and Josephus over in Liberia and brother Sylvester over in Zimbabwe and pastors all over the world, Lord, that I've never met, that I've never talked to, but we have one thing in common. We all worship the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Christ. So, Father, I pray that you remember them also as they shepherd their flocks this morning. Lord, now I pray and ask for illumination as we prepare to open your word. Lord, we know that in ourselves we are dull. We know also that our enemy, the devil, seeks to steal your word from us. We know that unless your spirit gives us soft hearts, that we will resist and refuse your word. So, Father, I pray that you remove from us all resistance to Christ and his gospel. Remove from us all obstacles to our spiritual growth and fruitfulness in your kingdom. I pray, Father, for your help that I might preach and teach your word with clarity and with wisdom in keeping with the meaning of scripture in its context. I pray, Father, that your for your wisdom as I preach. I pray also, Lord, that all of us, that all of us, Lord, as your people, those who are here and those who are listening online, that we may receive your word with humility and submission. And so, Lord, instruct us that your people may give you glory. Cause us, Father, to respond to your word by understanding what you say and obeying what you command. Lord, may your word bear fruit in our lives and produce Psalm 100-fold, Psalm 60-fold, Psalm 30-fold. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Let us turn to what book? Colossians. In our third sermon in this book, in this series on Colossians, Paul's letter to the Colossian Christians. We thank the Lord for his word. It is a lamp and a light. It is our means of growth. This morning we're going to concern ourselves with the preeminence of Christ. The preeminence of Christ. And let's look at our passage this morning. It says here, For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long suffering with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. 
and he is before all things and in him all things consist and he is the head of the body the church who is the beginning the firstborn from the dead that in all things he may have preeminence let him who has ears to hear let him hear there are many important things and important people in the world and in world history. When we think about the word important, we think about something that is necessary, something that is vital, and something that is urgent. In all of world history, we have had important people outside of people that we read in Scripture. A lot of important things have taken place in our world, even in our lifetimes and even in our lifespan. We've had a lot of important events to happen. You've had world wars. You've had civil wars. You've had the founding of, of nations. You've had Holocaust. You, you've had a lot of different important events, both uh, good and, and, and evil, both notorious and, and popular things and popular people in this world even just recently you had the resigning of one of the greatest head coaches of all time uh, one Nicholas uh, Saban and that's his real first name Nicholas by the way uh, Nick Saban uh, finally retired from coaching college football that was a very important human event uh, in, in our nation among college football fans that took place uh, last week and for some other people for that other uh, sister school the the little sister school Auburn you know you had uh, Cadillac Williams resigning from the the football uh, staff from that from that baby school you know Auburn down there on the plains uh, you had something important happen with them with Cadillac Williams uh, resigning from his uh, position as the assistant uh, football coach so you know that's just an hour in our little world here in the state of Alabama. We've had elections that happen where people have been elected and things have happened. You have the war going on between Israel and Hamas and Russia and Ukraine. You have other civil wars going on. We have a lot of things going on, a lot of important things involving a lot of important people. But above all these things, we have the most important person in all of human history that we preach about every Sunday, who we gather around every Sunday, and whom our lives should be informed by, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. The thing that makes Christ different from all other, he's not like any other person. He's not among a list of important people. You can't say the name Christ in the same breath as you say a Nick Saban or a George Washington or a Napoleon Bonaparte or a Adolf Hitler or any other type of world figure King Louis the 16th of the French Revolution you, you you can't put Jesus on the same par of of Socrates or Plato the great Greek philosophers you can't put him among these people as an equal because he's not Jesus is not the most important. He is the only important 
person. He has no equal. He has no rivals. And we know this because the scripture tells us. Paul says here at the very last part of verse 18. That in all things he may have preeminence. What does it mean to be preeminent? The word preeminent means above all. To be above all. To exceed all. To be in and through all. Preeminent means to be the biggest object of all. So we think about Christ. He is he is preeminent. He exceeds all things, all people, all events. He is above all people. He is above all events. His life was the, the greatest life ever lived. We see certain people in our world and say, oh man, they, they're living a great life. You know, they have all this money. They have this giant uh, house. They have all this praise from the world they they have all this popularity they can go around the world and everyone will recognize them you know if we think about some of the most recognized people in the world you know some people they can go all around the world and be recognized everywhere like a Michael Jackson when he was alive or like a Michael Jordan or like a LeBron James they can be the universally known people but even their universality cannot match the preeminence of Christ. And that's what we look at this morning. So as we look at this passage here, as in most of his other letters, Paul regularly moves from thanksgiving to a petition in the opening sections of his letters. We, we see this in Ephesians 1, 15 through 17, and we see this in Philippians 1. Uh, verses 9 through 11 where Paul transitions from his greeting to thanksgiving and then now to prayer. So after giving thanks for the Colossians reaction to the proclamation of the gospel which we looked at last week in verses 3 through 8 Paul now prays that they may continue on the course that they have begun. Now in the Greek text just as verses 3 through 8 are one paragraph in the Greek text the same with verses 9 through 14 in particular it is a single complex sentence that may be broken down into three main parts so the first thing we see in this passage is Paul's assertion of regular prayer on behalf of the Colossians along with the basic content of that prayer he begins by saying, for this reason, also, since the day we heard it, we do not cease to pray for you. So that was the first part of this prayer, the first main part. And then he gives the aspects of his prayer, the content. One is the knowledge of God's will and the manifestation of that knowledge. We see that in verses 9 through 10 in a lifestyle that is pleasing to God. And then the second part is a further description of what that lifestyle looks like employing uh, four participles in the Greek bearing fruit growing 
being empowered and giving thanks. That's in verses 10 through 12. And then the third part is a rehearsal of the deliverance from sin provided to the readers by God the Father through Jesus Christ. We see this in verses 12, the second part of verse 12 through verse 14. And then lastly, but not separately, he emphasizes the preeminence of Christ in verses 15 through 18 in relation to verses 9 through 14. So the big idea of this passage is that Christ is preeminent over all and is worthy of our highest worship. And so through this, I've constructed four principles that we are going to look at this morning. Four principles. And the overarching part of this principle is the realization of the preeminence of Christ and what it leads to. So what does the realization of the preeminence of Christ lead to? Number one, unceasing prayer for the saints, for their growth in knowing God. This we see here at the beginning. So let's look at the text. Paul says, for this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you. Now, when Paul says, we also, who is the we he's speaking of? He's speaking of himself, Timothy, and Epaphras. Remember the very first verse of this book, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. And then verse seven, as you also learn from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ. So when Paul is saying we pray for you, he's not just, talk, just talking about himself. He's talking about himself, Timothy and Epaphras. He says, since the day that we heard it, what is the it? It is the pronoun antecedent. It relates back to verses three through eight. So what is it that he heard? He heard about their, their faith. Verse four, your faith in Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints, the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. So because he heard that, he prayed for them. He says, I do not cease praying for you. And this is 1 Thessalonians 5 and 17 where Paul says to pray without ceasing. So because of the encouragement that he heard from the Colossian church when Epaphras came back to him while he was in prison and reported to him what was taking place in Colossae, that they're growing in their love toward each other. Okay, their faith in Jesus Christ is growing because they are looking for the hope that they have in heaven. Paul was encouraged by that. And so what did he do with that encouragement? He prayed for them. And what did he pray? As we look at this first principle. What I like to do, especially when I'm reading Paul's letters, I like to underline the verbs. I like to underline the verbs. That may be just an English teacher in me, but I was also taught that's a good way to study the Bible. You, you underline verbs, especially in the pastoral letters the epistles so I underline verbs and these are the verbs I underline I'm going to go through each one of them field walk pleasing him fruitful and strengthened 
So first Paul prayed that they may be filled. Okay. He says that in verse 9. That you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Knowing God leads to knowing his will. Excuse me. Which is found in Christ. Knowing God leads to knowing his will. You can't know God's will for your life if you don't know God. If you don't know who God is. If you don't know what God has done. You cannot know God apart. You can't know his will apart from knowing him. You have a lot of people walking around saying, oh, I, I need to know God's will for my life. But they don't know God. They don't want anything to do with God. They don't want anything to do with church or fellowshipping with the saints. But yet they say they want to know God. You cannot know God apart from his word because the word is the revelation of God. So Paul is praying that they may be filled with the knowledge of his will. In all wisdom and spiritual understanding. God gives us the wisdom and understanding to know his will. God gives us the wisdom to do that. It is God from whom all knowledge emanates, all truth, all true wisdom. James 1 and 5 says, if any of you, he's talking to believers, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. When you're reading God's word and you say, Lord, I don't understand this passage. Instead of closing your Bible and saying, forget about it. Say, Lord, show me what this passage means. And the Holy Spirit will reveal that to you. James says, if any of you like wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men liberally and does not hold back. So God will love to answer that prayer for you. That's the prayer that God will answer. Don't you think God wants you to know him more? So when you pray and ask God, Lord, show me what you mean in your word by this passage. Don't you think God will answer that prayer because he wants you to know him through his word? That is a prayer that will have a guaranteed answer. And Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 2. Verses 6 to 16, that no one can understand the things of God except by the spirit. The spirit of God has to reveal God's truth to them. That's why when I pray my prayer of illumination, I pray that the Lord sends the spirit to illuminate. Uh, illuminate means to bring light to or to make clear or to bring clarity to. You ask the spirit, Lord, illuminate this truth to me. Show me what this means. But no one can understand the things of the spirit except those who are of the spirit, except those who are believers. Because Paul says in that same passage in 1 Corinthians 2, that the natural man does not understand the things of the spirit. So Paul's that they may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. And that wisdom comes from God. It's not the wisdom of this world. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 and 6, however, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age. You know, not worldly wisdom or, or worldly philosophy or ideology, <clears throat> nor the rulers of this age 
who are coming to nothing. The wisdom of this world is nothing. It is coming to nothing. It is, that means it is empty. It is vain. It leads to nothing. People who are masters of worldly wisdom are leading to nothing. They're going down the road to nowhere. But Paul says, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Paul says, but God has revealed them what? The wisdom of himself to us through his spirit. For the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, Christian, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. So what does Paul say? Who reveals to us God's will? The spirit does. The Holy Spirit shows us the things of God. We don't get that from ourselves. Paul says again, 1 Corinthians 2 and 13, these things we also speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches. Comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. This is why people who are unsaved. We do evangelize the unsaved. But they will never understand what we're saying. Until the spirit of God reveals it to them. That's why a person who's unsaved can sit in a church. For five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years. And hear the gospel. And don't make one move toward Christ. Because the spirit has not revealed it to him. It's not that the spirit can't or won't. We just have to understand that just by virtue of them showing up don't mean that they're just going to understand right away they don't understand the Christian words that we use they don't know what justification is or sanctification and all those things election adoption all those different uh, words they don't know what that means but when they're saved when the spirit regenerates their heart and they see with new eyes and, and, and take on that new nature being born again guess what all that stuff will come clear to them but those who are unsaved, they cannot understand these things. They can't understand the will of God because they don't know God. They may say, I know God and I talk to him every day. <laughs> but they don't know God. Because God is talking to them and calling them to repent. So Paul here, this is the kind of wisdom that Paul is talking about. Not the, 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 the wisdom of this world. He's praying that they may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all, you could say, his wisdom and spiritual understanding. Spiritual understanding is understanding that comes by means of the Holy Spirit. And what else does he pray next? The next verb is walk, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him and being fruitful, increasing in, not, in knowing him. 
What this means is that knowing God's will, which comes from knowing him as he has been revealed through Jesus Christ in the scriptures, it leads to a godly life which pleases God. There's an order to this. So first, fear with the knowledge of God, the knowledge of his will, in all wisdom and understanding. And then after that, you may what? Walk. You can't walk worthy of the Lord if you're not walking in God's will. You can't walk worthy of the Lord if you don't know the Lord. You can't walk worthy of the Lord if you don't have godly wisdom and spiritual understanding. You can't put the cart before the horse. Knowing God's will, again, which means knowing him as he has revealed himself through Christ in the scriptures. That leads to a godly life which pleases God. That leads to a life that is fruitful. That leads to a life that increases in knowing him. The longer a person is a Christian, the more they should increase in knowing God. We'll never plumb the depths of who God is, either now or in eternity. There's never too much we can know about God. Even if you hear the same thing over and over and over again. Because our sinful minds are prone to wonder. Our sinful minds are prone to forget. Especially when we are in despair. Especially when we feel like things are, are, are hopeless. And, and we're in such helpless uh, positions. That is the time that we often forget God. We often forget to pray. We often forget to immerse ourselves in, in scripture. We, we go into shut down mode and, and shut everybody out and shut God out. We can't know him that way. So not only did he tell them, pray for them to walk worthy. The next word we see is strengthened. Okay, we see strengthened, verse 11. That's another verse. Strengthened with all might according to whose power his glorious power for all patience and long suffering with joy under the trials of false doctrine that were creeping into the Colossian church and into the church of today Paul prays for the strength and the power in which God gives them not their own power. Paul is praying for their strength. In the power which God. Which Christ gives them. It is God who supplies that for us. Remember Ephesians 6. Be strong in the Lord. And in the power of his might. Therefore put on the whole arm of God. We have to go in God's strength. We can't go in our own strength. Why? Because we're weak. You can bench press 350 pounds and be spiritually weak. So we need the Lord's strength. We need the Lord's help according to his glorious power for all patience and long suffering. It is God who does that. Paul prays for their strength. And they are to endure such trials with suffering and patience whatever trials we are encountered with right now we pray that God helps us to do what endure them James 1 2 through 4 my brethren count it all joy 
when you fall into various trials. Now, joy don't mean you just fake smile your way through or fake it until you make it. That's not what joy means. He says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith. So what James is saying here, the trials do what? Test our faith. The testing of our faith produces what? Patience, he says here. But let patience have its perfect work. That you may be perfect or mature and complete, lacking nothing. So James is telling us, he's echoing uh, Paul here. Strength with all might according to his glorious power and all patience and long-suffering with joy. Those trials, long-suffering through those trials with joy. Joy, why? Because you have hope beyond this world. You have hope beyond this present age. You have hope beyond the trials that you're going through. So we fall into trials. That testing produces patience and it makes us more mature in our faith. I talked about this for a few weeks ago. Our trials help us to grow in our faith. They make us stronger in the Lord. They make us depend on God more. They make us trust in God more. They make us look to the Lord more. They keep us on our knees, which is good. Amen and glory to God. True Christian joy comes from enduring trials with long-suffering and patience. Because you know what? When we see Christ in that great day, we're going to be over, we're going to be overjoyed because we've endured. And we know that Christ is going to give us that reward for enduring those trials. That that's what gives us joy is knowing that our Lord sees it, knowing that our Lord endured trials. He didn't sin like we did, but he endured the trials of being fully man. So the next principle we see, the realization of the preeminence of Christ leads to unceasing thanksgiving to God. So prayer to God, the prayer for the saints, and now we see unceasing thanksgiving to God the Father for his work through Christ. This is one of my favorite few verses in Scripture. Paul says here, Giving thanks, verse 12, to the Father. Now, I love these verbs right here. Qualified, delivered, conveyed. So Paul says, giving thanks to him. Why? He qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. This is thanking God for his work through Christ. So what did God do? Number one, he qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. It is God who qualifies the saints. And what does qualify mean in the Greek here? It means to make sufficient or to authorize. When a person is qualified, if they are qualified to drive forklifts that means that they are authorized to do it a person who's not qualified is not authorized 
to drive a forklift. A person who has a CDL, commercial driver's license, is qualified to drive certain vehicles. You have different classes. That means they are authorized to do it. A person who does not have a CDL is not authorized to do it. So you think about the word qualified, you think about authorized. So it is God who authorizes us. It is God who makes sufficient, makes us sufficient. It is God who makes us worthy to inherit the kingdom of God. Man, Paul said he's qualified us to be partakers of his inheritance. It is God who does that. We can't impose ourselves on God, as I said last week. We can't impose ourselves into God's family. Just like someone can't come and impose themselves into your family. God qualifies us. He is the one who makes us sufficient. He is the one who authorizes. He put his stamp of authority on us to receive his inheritance. God blessed us with all the spiritual blessings in the, in the heavenly places in Christ. That's Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. We talked about that when we went through that uh, Ephesians series last year. It is all of God, all of grace, which comes through the finished work of Christ. But not only has he qualified us, he also delivered us. The passage says, verse 13, he has delivered. That's another verb you want to underline. Delivered us from the power of darkness. And conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. In whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Those are the benefits. So let's look at this. Amen. Look at what God has done for us through Christ. First, he qualifies us. But not only that. He delivered us and conveyed us from sin. From the spiritual liberation from Satan's kingdom of darkness. Before we were saved, remember, we were dead in our trespasses. That's Ephesians 2 and 1. We were in darkness. Before God saved you, your, your mind was dark. Your thinking was dark. Your, your life was dark. You may not have been doing drugs and all this other stuff, but you were still in spiritual darkness. Because you were outside of Christ. You were spiritually dead. Darkness is a heart issue. It's not, it's not about what you do. A lot of people think, oh, I wasn't that bad. I wasn't doing drugs. I wasn't, you know, a prostitute. Or I wasn't an alcohol. You know, they, they think about all those things. But, but, but we're talking about the heart. Your heart is dark. Your heart is in darkness. Your thoughts are dominated by darkness and dark things. But what did God do? He delivered us. He liberated us spiritually from Satan's kingdom of darkness. Into his kingdom of light. The word conveyed means transferred. A, a transferal took place. Like a conveyor belt conveys articles down the belt, transferring it from one location to the next. That's what God does with us. He takes us from the location of darkness into the location of his light where we can see spiritually with spiritual eyes.
And it's not that we did it. He did it through Christ. John MacArthur said this. He says, God gave this kingdom to the son he loves as an expression of eternal love. Every person God calls and justifies is a love gift from him to the son. So when we're conveyed from darkness to light. We're conveyed from not being sons because that's why I say it's conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. So God gave this kingdom to Christ as an expression of eternal love. And everyone who is in Christ, everyone who God's calls is a gift to his son. So if you're saved this morning, you are a gift from God to his son, Jesus Christ. That is a great blessing that we have as Christians. And then Paul says, in whom? The in whom refers to Christ, the son. In whom we have, what's that word? Redemption. What is redemption? Redemption is the Greek word meaning to deliver by payment of a ransom or brought back from the power and slavery of sin which was accomplished through Christ's shed blood on the cross the writer in Hebrews 9 and 14 says this he says how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So this is what the blood of Christ does. It cleanses us. It cleanses our conscience, giving us a new way of thinking, a new way of looking at the world. It cleanses our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That is part of what Christ did on the cross. We talk about two things about Christ, the person and the work of Christ. The person of Christ is who he is and the work of Christ is what he has done. You hear me talk about that all the time, the, the person and work of Christ. Here we're speaking of the work of Christ, what he did. He redeemed us. He delivered us by payment of a ransom. And what was that ransom? The cross. The penalty of sin was paid on that tree. That's how Christ provided our redemption he brought us back from the power of sin it was accomplished through his shed blood on the cross and not only do we have redemption as Paul says in, in his prayer we have the forgiveness of sins what is forgiveness forgiveness means to grant remission of a penalty to remit something means to to mark it off that's what it means to remit something. Remittance means marking off of something. So, in other words, through Christ, he marked off our sins when we believed in him. We have forgiveness of sins. Our, our sins have been scratched off the record. They have been remitted. They have been paid in full. That's a remittance. Praise God that Christ paid our sin debt in full. He does not have to go back to the cross again and again and again. 
That's why the writer in Psalm 103 and 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. That's the remittance of our sins. That he has moved them far away from us. We're not to bring them back up because he's not going to dangle our sins over our head. He's not going to remind us of our sinful past. He's not going to remind us of the sins that we commit in the present. Christ does what? He removes them. As far as the east is from the west. That's the extent to our forgiveness that we have in Christ. Christ remembers our sins no more and neither should we. We don't have to go around beating ourselves over the head over past sins that Christ has already done what? Removed from us and forgiven us of. We have been forgiven in Christ. That is a great glorious truth for us as believers. You got many people walking around beating themselves up over the head. Over past sins. Why? They have been done away with in Christ. Why? You have been forgiven believer. You are justified. When you come to Christ. And believe in Christ. And are saved. It is as if you never sinned. Your sin record is wiped clean. Not just your, your past sins. But your present sins. And also your future sins. Have already been forgiven. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. That's why we sing that. Because it is from him that that blessing of forgiveness flows. And Paul prayed for this forgiveness. That they be strengthened. That they be that they are qualified. That God delivered us. And that through Christ we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Praise God for that. Which leads to our third principle. The realization of the preeminence of Christ leads to unceasing recognition of the preeminence of Christ through his person and work. And we see this in verses 15 through 18. This is one of the greatest passages in scripture about the preeminence of Christ. And what does Paul say here? He says, first, he is the image of the invisible God. Who is this son of love who has redeemed us from sin? And has given us forgiveness of sins. Who is he? And what has he done? Remember that Christ is. He's not was. He's not a will be. He is not became. Christ is. Paul didn't say he was. The image. He didn't say that he will be the image. He didn't say that he became the image of the invisible God. No, Paul says that what? He is. That means he always is. That's, that's like God when he said to Moses in Genesis uh, 3 and 14, when Moses asked God, who should I tell them sent me? And God said, I am who I am. That means that I am the God who was and who is and who is to come. The God who always is. The God who always exists. The, the God who was never not. So when Paul says that Jesus is, that means he's always been. Like Jesus told those Pharisees in John 8 chapter, before Abraham was, I am. That means he always has been. There was never a time when Christ did not exist. He always has been. Always will be. And always is. So, 
Paul says he is the image of the invisible God. Jesus said in John's gospel, when you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He said in another passage, I and the Father are one. The very first chapter of John, the first few verses, John says, and the word became flesh and we beheld his glory. As the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So Christ is the image of the invisible God. The writer in Hebrews, Hebrews 1 and 3, talks about Christ. It says, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. And upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. So this writer was saying that Christ is the brightness of God's glory. The next says that Christ is the firstborn over all creation here in verse 15. This means that Christ is of the highest rank. Not that he was the first created because this is a trick question that a person may ask you. Was Jesus Christ created? The answer is no. Christ is not a created being. He always existed. Jesus is not a created being. He always existed. There was never a time when he was not. He existed in eternity with the Father. So when it says he's the firstborn of all creation, that means that he is of the highest rank, not the first created. He has the preeminence over all creation. Always remember that. Christ always existed. What else does Paul say? He is the creator of all things on heaven and earth. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. So Jesus Christ, this is how preeminent he is. He is the creator of all things. He is sovereign over all the creation. He was God's creation agent. Why is Christ preeminent? Because he created all things on heaven and earth. Things we see and things we don't see. Thrones, dominions, all the rulers are subject to Christ. All the powers of this world, all the 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 wealthy and all the rulers, all the prime ministers and presidents and all the governors, all people in authority, guess what? They are all subject to the preeminence of Christ. Why? Because it is him who made them. Know you that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and not we ourselves. That's Psalm 100. What else is he preeminent in? 
Christ is the center, the seat, and the sum of our worship. Paul says, through him and for him. All things were created, what? Through him and for him. Again, we talk about this all the time. What is man's chief end? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Why? Because all things were created through him and what? For him. All of life is worship. Not just what you do on Sunday morning between 1030 and 12 o'clock. Work is worship. Marriage is worship. Raising children is worship. Being in the public square is worship. How you drive is worship. What you do amongst friends and family members is worship. All things were created through him and for him. And in the Greek, the word all means what? All. <laughs> all things. Paul says here. I created through him and for him. Jesus created the material and spiritual universe for his pleasure and his glory. The material universe is the things that we see. He created all that for him. How you build a chair should be for his glory. How we cook, how we interact with people should be for his glory. That is, that is how glorious Christ is. That is how transcending his, like I said in the beginning of this sermon, you got very important people in this world and very important events, but no one is worthy of all this but Christ. We don't do things for the glory of man. We do it for the glory of God. We don't do it for the glory of fallen people. We do it for the glory of God. Paul continues, he says, he is before all things. This means basically when the universe had its beginning, Christ had already existed. We talked about that. And by definition, he must be eternal. John 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Christ was with God in the beginning. So this shows that we say he's before all things. Remember, Christ didn't just become a, a person when he was born of a virgin of the Virgin Mary. No, Christ always existed. He is that which in all things consists. Paul talked about this in Acts 17 before the Areopagus. That in him all things consist. Paul said that in, in him we live and, and move and, and have our being. Paul had observed a shrine with an inscription uh, to the unknown God. He says here in Acts 17 and 23. Therefore the one whom you worship without knowing him I proclaim to you. God who made the world and everything in it since he is Lord of heaven and earth. There we go again. Heaven and earth. Heaven and earth. Heaven and earth. Heaven and earth. That's a theme in scripture. The preeminence. He says he does not dwell in temples made with hands nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. Since he gives to all life, breath, 
in all things. So that's when Paul says here in this passage that in him all things consist. That means that everything comes from God. Everything has its source in God. Back in Acts 17, 26, Paul says, and he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and he has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. Think about that. God is so sovereign over everything that he determined where you would live. He determined where all the people groups of the world would dwell and their boundaries. It is God who determined that. You had nothing to do with where you were born. You had no control in the womb. Who had control over that? God. We have no control of the fact that we were born in the United States. That we have no control that the United States was even a nation. It was the sovereign God who determined that. It was the sovereign God who determined the boundaries of where people would dwell. And that's what Paul is saying here to these philosophers at the Areopagus, and that's what he is saying in Colossians about the preeminence of Christ that it is in him that all things consist it is in him that all things are because Paul says here further in Acts 17 he says that in him verse 28 we live and move and have our being it is in God that we can do all that it is in God that we can live it is in God that we can move, have mobility, move from place to place, city to city, state to state, or whatever. It is in him that we have our being. The essence of who we are is because of God, because of his preeminence. So in him all things consist. And then Paul continues as we get ready to close here in this section. He is the head of the body, the church. And Paul used the, uh, the human body as a metaphor. So Christ serves as the, the head. Just as the body is controlled by the brain. So Christ controls every part of the church and gives the church life and direction. And again, he is from the beginning. It means that he's the source and preeminence. The first one from the dead that in all things he may have preeminence. Christ was the first firstborn from the dead, meaning that he was the first chronologically to be resurrected, never to die again. Of all who have been raised from the dead, and that includes everybody, Christ is supreme. He is the only one who still lives. Although Lazarus was resurrected, guess what? He still died again. He didn't live forever. So this shows that Christ has preeminence over all things. So let's look at our gospel implications and then our applications. The implications, number one, we're no longer held in bondage to Satan. Sin can no longer be the master of our lives because Jesus is Lord. Number two, we're always progressing in our knowledge of God, which leads to a godly life. Excuse me. Number three, since we are strengthened by Christ, 
We have everything we need to live the Christian life. Everything. Number four, we are qualified to partake in his kingdom. And guess what? Nobody can take that from us. Nobody can take away our kingdom standing. No, no trial, no amount of persecution. Nothing can take away our standing in Christ. Be encouraged by that. Nothing can take away our standing in Christ. Absolutely nothing. And we are redeemed, we are delivered, and we are forgiven by the blood of Christ. We are not guilty. The Christian stands before God not guilty because of Christ's work. Remember, Christ is our mediator. He's our advocate. He advocates for us on our behalf. He's our high priest. He intercedes for us. He pleads our righteousness before the Father, the righteousness that we have in him. He pleads that a Christian stands before God not guilty. We don't stand before God condemned. Paul says in Romans 8 and 1, there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We're not condemned. We get convicted, yes. But I always say don't confuse conviction with condemnation. Condemnation is, is judicial. It is, a, it is a punishment like a, a, a prisoner is condemned a defendant is condemned to jail. It is, a, it is a sentence. It is punitive. It is punishment. That's what happens to the unbeliever. We don't stand before God condemned as a condemned prisoner. We stand before God not guilty. And we are convicted. Conviction is when the Holy Spirit convicts us of a sin. We sin and the Holy Spirit says, no, you are wrong. You sinned against God. Confess your sins. Repent and turn away from your sins. That's what conviction looks like. Conviction is never condemnation. We are not guilty before God. Now that doesn't mean that we don't confess our sins. But it means that what Paul said in Romans 8, who can lay a charge against God's elect? No one. If you're in Christ, no one can accuse you spiritually. They can you can accuse you of a crime if you did something, but no one can say you always you always be guilty. You'll never be forgiven. No one can ever tell you that because you're standing in Christ is different. You've already been forgiven. Amen. Applications. Live as those who are free from sin. Christ has overcome our sins. We live. As if we're not guilty. We don't have that burden. We don't have to worry about, again, beating ourselves over the head. Over sins that Christ has already forgiven. He's overcame those. Live as those who know God. Christ has revealed God to us. So we, we, we live as those who know God. Live as those who know his word. Live as those who have been delivered Redeem and forgiven because Christ has purchased us. We're free, people. We're free. We don't have to walk around with our heads down. We have been delivered from sin. We have been redeemed, bought, purchased, and we have been forgiven. That is such a liberating thought that I pray that we know and we live with. And live as those who worship Christ because he is preeminent. We worship the one who is above all, who is through all, who is over all. We are the king's kids. 
Let us worship Christ like that. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the preeminence of Christ. We thank you that Christ is over all. He's not like fallen man. He's not uh, like weak man. But he is strong. He is mighty. And he is powerful. Father, help us as believers in here. We Sometimes we struggle with that assurance that, that our sins have been forgiven. Sometimes we, we struggle with the assurance that we are in Christ. But Lord, help us to know, help us to see, help us to grasp the reality that our sins have been forgiven. That we are in Christ. That he conveyed us. That God qualified us. That God delivered us. That God conveyed us. And that in Christ we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. Lord, may Paul's prayer for the Colossians be our prayer, that we may be filled with the knowledge of your will and our wisdom, that we may walk worthy of you, that we may be strengthened in all might. Lord, help us in our weakness to know these truths. Plant them in our hearts. As David said in Psalm 11, 119 rather, your word have we hid in our hearts that we may not sin against you. Until we meet again, Father, may your grace be with us. In Christ's name, amen.